Would you listen closely for this is God's words to us and for us um, from 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 8 through 14. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean." But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpa the rivers of Damascus better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Tonight's sermon text is from the book of Acts. We're going to be in chapter 16, verses 6 through 15. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mycenae, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them. So passing by Mycenae, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we, were, where we were supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the woman who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to the house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me as we begin? Lord, we're so thankful that you've given to us your word, and that by it we can see you, by it we can see ourselves, and by it we can be shaped and formed into your people. So we're gathered here asking you by your spirit to shape us, to grow us, to form us, to encourage us, to exhort us, and to lift us up as we look at these things together. Come and be with us. Amen. Thanks, Ashley and Laurel. This text in particular had a few names and places in it, and they did a great job. I'm glad I didn't have to read them all. 
So you guys may have noticed, uh, we're reading Acts 16, and if you were handed your worship guide, at some point between maybe the door and your seat, a map fell out, uh, or you might have made it all the way there. There was, as I was getting ready for this sermon during the week, there was a, a particularly challenging section where I was trying to describe uh, the way that Paul might have walked from Jerusalem to Greece, and I realized um, there are actually a reason that we invented maps, because describing how to walk from Jerusalem to Greece is actually a pretty challenging thing. So if you do have a map, uh, that might be helpful to you when we uh, look deeper into the text. So if you are joining us for, for the first time in our series of Acts, I want to catch you up just a little bit into where we are in the story. For the, right at the beginning of the book of Acts, Jesus ascends into heaven, uh, and he makes a statement to the apostles that are gathered there that they will be uh, working on his behalf to be witnesses to all the earth of everything that Jesus has done. And then the Holy Spirit falls, people come to know the Lord, and for the first ten chapters we see the Holy Spirit at work, using signs and wonders, and often even the persecution and suffering of the apostles to spread the gospel throughout the earth. Around chapter 11 we begin to see a subtle shift where Paul and Peter uh, become kind of the central figures by which we're watching the spread of the gospel. The leadership in Jerusalem then joined them to seek to lead the church into clarity as the Gentiles are now being formed into uh, the church along with the Jews. Paul and Barnabas went through a fight uh, just last week over John Mark, and they proceed to split up and take different groups and go to take the message from Jerusalem uh, about how the Gentiles can come to know the Lord and what worshiping together would look like for these groups of Jews and Gentiles. So Paul takes Silas, and he moves to Ephesus, and you would see on your map there he finds, uh, in, in Galatia, he finds Timothy. So you heard the text that Laurel read, and, and, and verses 6 through, six through 10 are actually pretty simple. It's called the, the Macedonian Call. But this seemingly simple text has two really important messages for us that I hope we can get into today. The first one is a claim that's both deeply unpopular uh, and at times deeply painful. And the second is a truth that, in my experience, can take a whole lifetime to believe. But if we can rest in it, it will set us free. This is the point in the sermon where you would be familiar with Joel saying, uh, if you don't hear anything else I say tonight, hear this. Well, I'm going to take it up a notch, and I'm going to say two things to you that I hope you remember. I believe in you. First, the painful and unpopular truth. You are simply not in control of your life. God is. You're simply not in control of your life. God is. And then the second, one of what I believe is one of the hardest things to believe in the Christian faith. That's actually good. That's actually a good thing. So here's how we'll dig into those two things together. First, we'll look at the text closely. Then we'll discuss what that might mean for our mission as Grace Fellowship. And then I will try to tell you three reasons why this is such good news for your heart. So look with me, if you will, back at Acts 16, starting in verse 6, and I'll read through verse 8. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden 
by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. And so passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. This is a great place to break out those handy little maps. What you'll see is, at this point, Paul, Silas, and Timothy now have to walk all the way across the country of Turkey. They have a desire to move from Galatia into this area called Asia. And one of the difficult things about reading the New Testament in a modern way is when when the New Testament talks about Asia, they're actually just talking about this western portion of the modern country of Turkey. It's easy for us to assume that that means moving into Afghanistan or into Central Asia like India or Nepal or China, but for, for them, Asia is the central part of Turkey. And so Paul and Silas and Timothy are going to try to share with them the teachings from Jerusalem, and instead they get diverted. And if you'll see, they kind of walk north all the way through Turkey. There are mountain ranges on either side. They come all the way up to the the Black Sea. And they hope to turn right. They hope to turn right and move into Bithynia, to to move further east, back into the the kind of Georgia, modern-day Armenian area of the world. And again, the scriptures teach something the spirit of Jesus prevented them. And so they take that hard left, they follow the coast, and they come to the city of Troas. So obviously, we're, we're pretty slim on details here. You know, the book of Acts can be difficult sometimes, because it talks about really important, really significant ways that God's Spirit is at work in his church. And then it leaves out some what I would consider to be really important details that might be useful. In what way were they forbidden from entering Asia? What exactly did the Holy Spirit do to stop them from walking into Bithynia? I don't know. Scholars would suggest all sorts of things. We know Paul was sick uh, at a certain time when he was writing his, his, his letter to the Galatians, and, and some people assume maybe it was a physical illness that prevented them. Perhaps it was a war. Perhaps there was a natural disaster. Perhaps there's a reason the road was shut down. Perhaps simply the Spirit spoke and said, you will not go there. I don't know. But I want to try to enter into the mind of Paul here. Paul is likely just trying to do something. Just trying to do something according to God's direction and the gifts and the, and the kind of responsibilities that he has taken up in God's church. It makes perfect sense. They've decided these things about how the Gentiles need to behave to be joined into the greater uh, uh, unity of of God's people. And so he's going and he he tries to make his way to the Gentiles in in Asia and and Bithynia. You know, if you're Paul, you're sitting there trying to figure out where you go, you might hear the actual words of Jesus from, from Matthew 28 saying, make disciples of all nations. So he goes. Maybe ringing in your ears are the words of Jesus from the beginning of Acts. Be witnesses to all the earth. So he goes. Perhaps when he met Aeneas after his own salvation, Aeneas told him what God said about Paul. Here's what God said about Paul to Aeneas. I want you to go, Aeneas, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel where I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. 
So Paul, knowing everything about how the Lord has set out to bring people to know his name, knowing that he's been given a particular responsibility in the kingdom of God, knowing that he has a unique set of skills, both as a preacher and as a a person who's been able to connect with leaders throughout all these Gentile towns, is just trying to make a healthy and reasonable decision about the ways to take the gospel forward. What is the Lord doing? This is Paul. He's been stoned. He's been arrested. There are kings and leaders of countries that have tried to stop him from preaching the gospel, and they all come short. Why is God restraining the gospel? No idea. Yet. Let's keep reading. So when Paul has now arrived in Troas, you may notice something in the text. Suddenly, the story goes from they, they went down to Troas, to we. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on to Macedonia. So watch that as I read verses 9 and 10. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So Paul goes to Macedonia, he goes to Troas, and he meets a guy who actually happens to be a Macedonian person as far as we know, Luke, who's the physician, the writer of this book. So Luke now is accompanying Paul and Silas on the rest of this journey, and that's where you'll notice that it becomes we. So I find this interesting because we have no information here about how Paul felt about all of these closed doors he encountered. We don't know if if he was frustrated, if he was angry, if he was disappointed, if he he felt like he should make another attempt to get back into Bithynia or Asia. We, We don't get any information here that Luke wants to share with us about Paul's emotional response to these things. But I want to share with you a little of how I feel when my plans especially the ones that are seeking to be faithful to God, seeking at, coming at great sacrifice to me, are, are found to be fruitless, disappointing. When they fail, I find myself disillusioned. I find myself discouraged. I find myself angry, even at times rebellious or closed off. And sometimes at, at my worst, I find myself apathetic, empty. But what is Paul? Again, we don't get much in his emotional state, but here's something we do see. Paul, called to be the apostle to the Gentiles, is open to be redirected. He's open to have his path shifted. He's careful to consider. Even when, after having seen all of these closed doors, you might think he would come to an open one and like the song about the country song about dancing, I hope you dance. Like whenever one door closes, I'll hold one more open. You know that song? <laughs> Paul doesn't sprint immediately through the open door awaiting him. He immediately goes, but what he says is they concluded which means they had some sort of a conversation. They concluded that God had called them to preach the gospel. 
So even Paul, after encountering obstacle and obstacle, closed door and closed door, even when a vision from God himself comes where a Macedonian person says, come and help us, he goes and he speaks with Silas and he speaks with with Luke now and he speaks with Timothy and he says, I believe that God has called us to go into Macedonia. And they conclude, we concluded to go into Macedonia together. He's open to be redirected. He's careful to consider And then he's enthusiastic to respond. Even in the midst of what must have been a months-long journey, all throughout Turkey, receiving nothing but obstacles, he's enthusiastic and jumps at the opportunity to serve the Lord in a place he never imagined or desired to go in the first place, in Macedonia. So what happens? What happens when Paul receives this redirection, considers carefully, and enthusiastically goes? Look with me in verses 11 through 15. So setting sail from Troas, we made a voyage to Samothrace. And the following day, Neapolis, and from there, Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia in a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we, were, we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia. From the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, please come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. So here we have Paul, again, called to take the gospel to all nations, called to be apostle to the Gentiles, has gotten shut out of Asia, shut out of Bithynia, has a dream, moves over to Macedonia, believes he's called to preach the gospel to all peoples, and where does he find himself? But at a place they suppose to be a place of prayer, with a small gathering of women, probably not unlike what you guys are going to do in this room tomorrow. It says that Lydia is a worshiper of God. This likely means she was a Gentile who had come alongside the Jews and began studying the works Uh, of God in the Old Testament, the works of God uh, in the scriptures. She was likely trying to assimilate to some of Jewish life. She's the exact kind of person that the, the elders in Jerusalem had been talking about. How can this person who's a Gentile, who wasn't born an Israelite, be part of a unity of worshiping the Israel's God together as a Christian person? All of a sudden, Paul shows up in a women's Bible study in Greece when he left for Asia with the word of God that Lydia needs to hear. And so he preaches. He tells her the good news of Jesus, and we see how Lydia responds. God opened her heart. So here we see, again, Paul ending up where he didn't plan to go, but favoring the opportunity over the specifics of what he had imagined about the way that he would serve God. So Lydia, we know a few things about her as she comes to know the Lord. We know that she sells purple goods, which means she's wealthy. It means she probably occupies the higher class of the city. We know that afterwards her home 
is going to become a staging point in the, the city of Philippi. And you guys are familiar with the book of the Philippians. There will be a growing and thriving church established in Philippi. And the first believer, the first person that Jesus uses to draw and create the beginnings of that church in Philippi, as far as we know, is this woman here, Lydia. And then, because I believe our God has a sense of humor, Paul has to change his mind again. I am sure they were headed somewhere to stay, and Lydia says, no, 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 if you judge me to be faithful with God, you'll, you'll stay in my house. And it says, she prevailed upon us. Paul lost the argument again, and he stays with Lydia. And it becomes the place that the church grows. Kind of an interesting text, right? Not as much detail in this story as you would hope as a preacher you might find. But I actually think hidden in this passage are some things that are really helpful for us to know as a church for our mission and as Christian people for our hearts. So the first thing I want to I share, share with you from this passage, especially when thinking about when Grace Fellowship imagines itself to be a faithful presence of Jesus. When we imagine ourselves to be kind of scattered throughout our workplaces, throughout our neighborhoods, throughout Birmingham, and in the Lord's will to the ends of the earth, the Spirit's mission through the church, at least as imaged here in Acts 16, is to bring the saving news of Jesus to real, actual, identifiable people. Look at the narrowing of this passage. I will go and I will take the gospel to Asia. No. Okay, I will go and I will take the gospel to Bithynia. No. Okay, I will go, and I'll go on the only road left, and I'll show up at Troas. No. All right, Macedonia. Okay, this little Bible study. Okay, Lydia. Do you see the concrete sending, directing, moving of the Lord? The Lord isn't in this to save abstract groups of people. He's in these things to call for himself a people, real people, people like Lydia, people like you, and people like me. One of my favorite things about this Christian faith to imagine and think about is that somehow, in some way, there is an unbroken line of people who have been bold enough and faithful enough to share the gospel one person at a time from one of the apostles all the way down to me. Whether those are mothers, fathers, country preachers, parsons, missionaries, I have no idea. But all the way down that lineage, someone told someone, told someone, told someone about the good news of Jesus. And here I am in a pulpit, thousands of miles away, telling you about the goodness of Jesus. Because this is what he does. This is how the Spirit moves. The mission of the Spirit through the church is to bring the good news of Jesus to real, actual A little advice on, on how this might work. A word that I heard all the time when I was part of my college ministry was calling. It was actually pretty surprising to me as an 18 to 22-year-old how many people had been called every single night at our, our Wednesday night worship service. I don't mean to kind of bemoan that or mock that. There was a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of joy in the ways that people felt called to seek the Lord. I obviously was among them. 
I was called many different times. I was called to be a part of this ministry that we had at this boys and girls club. I was called to be a missionary to the Muslim Arabs. I was called to be the preacher in, at our Sunday, you know, summer kind of worship at the well. I was, called to, I was called to all sorts of different things, or so I understood. My advice in years of trying to faithfully follow the Lord would be when you're looking for your calling, try to allow God to narrow the field. One of the things that I felt a lot of pressure for as a 19, 20, 21, 22-year-old was to have an understanding of God's will for my life, to know exactly where, what path he had laid out for me, what steps I was supposed to take, to know exactly how he was going to unfold his kingdom through my particular gifts and my particular passions and my particular skills. And let me tell you, none of those paths I imagined had me here. They didn't. And here I am. It's God that narrowed. In fact, in my experience, when you have a very narrow vision of everything God intends to accomplish through your life, every deviation feels like disappointment and failure. When it isn't, it isn't. The Lord knows where he's taking you, and he knows where you're headed. So if you're looking to know where the Lord is sending you, be open to letting God narrow your view. Another thing that I see in this, if we will be faithful to keep our eyes open, the Lord will open hearts for the gospel. This is his method. You know, Paul himself will write in his letter to the Corinthians in chapter 5, he'll say, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, and behold, the new has come. And at the end of that chapter, he says this, and we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. Here we see in Paul, as he's faithful to be open to redirection, as he's faithful to consider carefully, as he's faithful to respond enthusiastically, we see that he will, and he being the Lord, and he is sending us right into the harvest. And when you're not quite sure where to use the particular passions, the particular skills, the particular gifts, the particular history that you have been brought into this church bringing, Take heart first, because Paul felt it before you. And that's Paul we're talking about. He had to walk a thousand miles trying to find the right place to serve and to love and to meet the people God was sending him to. But you might as well start with an actual person. You might as well start with someone you can put your eyes on, that you can hear their story, and that you can know that you have an opportunity to love and share the good news of Jesus with. If you don't know where to start, start with an actual person. Start with Lydia and see what the Lord will do. So that's a message for our mission, what it means to be a bit of a faithful presence at Grace Fellowship. The Spirit's mission through his church, through Grace Fellowship, is to bring the news of Jesus to real, actual people. All right. So what does this say to our hearts, John? You know, I, I'm sure that there were a lot of camps in Alabama where youth groups went to let kids run crazy and jump in lakes and have no, like, like five chaperones for four, 45 kind of teenagers and everything went terrible. I don't know what their names were, uh, but in, in, Al or in Georgia, uh, we went to, um, well, I just forgot the name of it. Something Cove. 
We went to Something Cove. They're all the same. You can picture it. Dirty bunks, you know, plastic silverware, plastic plates. Like, we went there, all right? And we yelled at each other, and we played sports, and we tried to kiss girls, and we did the whole thing. <laughs> tried, by the way. Um, well, while we were there one time, there were these crabapple trees everywhere in this place. And it was gross, looking back. I mean, they would just be all over the streets, and they'd be all over the porches. And, and crabapples are these kind of like dense, hard little pieces of fruit. And if you take roughly 50 teenage boys, and you surround them with thousands of pieces of hard, dense little fruit, it is not long before they begin to hurl them at one another as if this is a battle or a war, especially if you have nothing on the agenda. So we're out, we're running, we're, we're throwing these crab apples at each other, we have teams, and I'm sprinting through one cabin to another cabin to another cabin, and I hit the glass door at full speed. I break the door, I break my nose, glass goes everywhere. It was a rude interruption to the plan that I had. I was sneaking in the back, I was going to win, and I hit the glass door. I tell you all that as a silly introduction to the fact that the most painful things that I have experienced in following Jesus have come out of the blue, walking in the ways I thought he called me to go, chasing the things that I thought he'd asked me to want and look for. I'd been convinced of the good things that God was seeking. I was willing to lay down my time, my energy, and my efforts to go after them, and I hit a wall. I think you all know what I mean. I hit it hard. So for your hearts, if God is really in control, then not every obstacle you encounter is evidence that you've done something wrong. When I've experienced this kind of futility, this kind of frustration, this kind of hardship, it's easy for me to fall into patterns of guilt and disappointment. An assumption that if the Lord has given me all these good things and put all these good people around me to love and serve and I only find myself failing, that I must have done something wrong. Now, I don't want to rule out the fact that sin and our own failures can, can keep us from being faithful to all the Lord has placed in front of us. But I do want to challenge the part in each and every one of you that says, if you have chased something authentically because you believe the Lord had gifted and called you and sent you to do it, and you have experienced futility and failure, it doesn't mean you did something wrong. That's what this text says. Paul chased the things that God called him to. And for what must have been months, he found nothing but walls. And he didn't do anything wrong. Maybe you didn't either. So if God is in control, and he is, maybe not every obstacle you encounter means you did something wrong. If God is in control, this is my second thing. You, for today at least, are right where you're supposed to be. You know, we were on a plane going to, the, to Arizona to visit my, uh, my sister-in-law, April sister Katie. And, you know, we have a six-month-old. So the plane flight's going great. 
Um, and we turn on uh, a movie as April's trying to feed Gabriel and people are up and talking and all this stuff is happening. But we find everything everywhere all at once, which you guys may be familiar won the, the best picture at the Oscars. And at first I was completely overwhelmed by the movie. I couldn't really focus and weird things kept happening. But by the end, I was actually a little blown away by some of its message. I'm a little confused, if I'm honest, about all the ways they came to their conclusions without some of the confidence and trust that I have in the Lord. But here's the message of that movie as I kind of understood it at the end. You know, you have these characters, and I don't want to spoil everything, but they keep encountering all sorts of alternate versions of themselves. Ones with bigger skills. Ones that have become famous. Ones that didn't fail the tests that they failed. Ones that didn't screw up the relationships that they screwed up. And throughout the movie, you begin to feel this kind of mounting weight that what if you're the least important, least successful, least meaningful version of yourself, of all the worlds out there? What if you're that one? And at the end, it's that one who focuses on the things in front of her, her family, and asserts that that life, not all the imaginary ones, all the ones we make up, not the image and version of ourselves that we dream of when we fall asleep and thought we were on the path to, the one that actually exists is the one that matters. Now, that's a Christian thought. I don't know if it came from Christian sources, but that is a Christian thought. Because if Jesus Christ came to become a man, and if we are now caught up in Christ, then you, this you, the you in this pew, is eternally significant, doing eternally significant things. You know, we talked just a couple weeks ago about Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together, that says the imaginary church is the biggest enemy to your actual church. Another thing that I found doing pastoral care for others and then receiving the Lord's care in my own soul, the biggest enemy to the actual you is your imaginary one. The one that you've constructed that did all the things, said all the things, loves all the people, never makes any mistakes. That one doesn't exist, but this one does, and this one matters. So if God's actually in control, then today, at least, you are where you're supposed to be. You didn't screw all the things up. You aren't off the path. You don't actually have to find God's will for your life. You can't lose it. You're here because God put you here with the actual people you know, the actual skills you possess, the actual gifts you have, the actual opportunities in front of you. You're where you're supposed to be. And then for one more set of you guys in the room, as I describe these things, you may be thinking, closed doors, holy ambitions. John, I've got more than enough on my plate already. I'm not looking to take on new things or achieve amazing things. I'm just trying to be faithful to the 70,000 things that suddenly have found themselves on my plate. I'm trying not to let any of them fall. And when I'm honest, I feel like I'm failing. If that's you, then God's control is good news for you too. Because this God, the one who called you, the one who came to you, the one who saved you, 
He is the one that will see it all through. Paul doesn't get where he thought he was going. But let me tell you, in Greece and as far as Rome, Paul becomes the apostle to the Gentiles. The gospel will go to Asia on Paul's lips and on the lips of the disciples of Lydia, the people who come up in Philippi. They begin to send missionaries into Asia. Through this moment, the walls that seem to have been erected, God is the one who has torn them down. God began a good work in you, and he is the one that will carry it to completion. Something that's precious about all this to me, when I feel like things are slipping through my fingers, I feel like I'm unclear on where God has sent me next, I feel unsure if I'm the person to step into the things in front of me, something that I always try to remember is this, that what Jesus Christ won on the cross, he won't lose. What Jesus Christ won on the cross, he won't lose. Our ladies are going to study Isaiah 53, so I've even been reflecting on it some this week. And it says this at the end, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. This is Jesus. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear all their iniquities. And therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for us all. He's not going to lose anything he came to get. The author of Hebrews said it this way, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He endured the cross for the joy set before him. That's Paul, that's Lydia, that's John, that's April, that's Davis, that's Drew, that's Morgan, that's Caroline. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He will not lose what he went to get. He will bring all his promises to pass, and he will hold us fast. And I think that is a bit of what this story can tell us. You're not in control of your life, actually. Many of you guys have learned that in painful ways. I know I have too. But God is, and actually, for today and for tomorrow, for you and for your neighbor, for God's glory and for the church's mission, it really is a very good thing. Would you pray with me?